And welcome to the Beervana Show. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Uh, wait a minute. You have extra text here. I actually, I actually rewrote our script. Isn't that cool? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's okay. So well, I'm going to freestyle. Yeah. Then I'll come back to the script. <laughs> well, that's that's our uh, sort of our brand. So that's all right. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We're back here at the Falcon Art Building in North Portland, the beautiful studios of X-Ray FM. They have the green screen up. Yeah, they had the cool X-Ray a while ago, but now it's green screen. Um, yeah, the burlap no kn- is gone. The green screen is back. No one has any idea what we're talking about. Well, the studio has cameras in case you want to do video. And so they have a green screen in case you want to do backgrounds. Uh, and so we're surrounded by green sheets. Yeah. Which is interesting. As as scintillating conversation goes, this maybe was not our best. <laughs> Should I get back to the script? Okay, ready? Yeah. Welcome to the Beervana Show, which of course you can download as a podcast. There you are. Ooh, that's nice. Thank you. We join you nearly li- Oh, I did that one. Uh, with me is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible and The Widmer Way. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's good. Uh, that's very good. And I'm not doing a voice. You are, you are Patrick Emerson. I'm Patrick. Oh, whoops. Sorry, that was a big pop. I'm Patrick Emerson, uh, professor of economics at Oregon State University. Yeah. So you, you might, you might, there might be some context to this, which is, which is that I, uh, I was done with my meeting early. Uh huh. And, uh, so and I was what waiting did you do, for Patrick? You. So right around the corner from the beautiful, uh, Falcon Art Building, Studios of X-Ray FM is Saravesa, which yeah. is one of Portland's nicest, oldest, coolest beer bars. And you've been drinking. Uh, well, hey, I had a Hellas, a little glass of Hellas while I was waiting. All right. Uh, so yeah. Well, it's also here in Portland, Oregon, springtime, and we've had sunny weather, and the the trees are in bloom. And I I, I noticed that people's moods have been elevated. Yeah, uh, my mood has been elevated. My my cherry tree out in front of my house is starting to bloom. Mm-hmm. So good things are on tap, and uh, daylight savings time starts this weekend. That's right. Everybody be alert. All Although good, all good things. We don't actually know when you'll listen to this, so maybe don't be alert. <laughs> By the way, a uh, little anecdote, amusing to everybody, I'm sure. Uh, when I was at Saravesa, they have these tables that are um, uh, bottle caps that have been encased in sure in whatever, polyurethane or something like that. Right. And I, I was using my little iPad, which has this fancy sort of magnetic cover on it. And so I put my iPad there and it was stuck to the table. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that it was all wet. I thought, oh no, I spilled my beer and now it's like suctioned on there. But no, it was actually just the mag- magnets and the beer caps. Ah, so there you go. There you go. Modern tech. <laughs> all right. Before we get started, we'd like to thank Breakside Brewery for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana Show. You can find them in Slabtown, Woodlawn, and Milwaukee, Oregon, or at breakside.com. Indeed. Thank you so much, Breakside, for uh, being our partner here. Yeah. Uh, so the beer that I had at Cerevesa was a Hellas by Wander from Bellingham, Washington. Yeah, we got to get a, maybe I think Bellingham is a potential stop at some point. Bellingham is one of the most impressive small towns for beer on in the United States, maybe in the world. It's amazing. And Wander is just one of the fine breweries there. And Bellingham's beautiful, especially in the summer. I mean, beautiful all year round, I'm sure. But especially in the summer, it's an amazing place to visit. So yeah, let's do it. All right. On our way to it's, it's Vancouver, BC. A hop, skip, and a jump from Vancouver, BC. That's right. So, they, yeah. All right. So, that's our big plan then. Let's get the intern to set it up. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, today's show, I almost said podcast. If you're listening to us on a podcast, then it is a podcast. <laughs> but yep. show is a more all-encompassing term. So, if you step into a beer hall in Cologne, you'll be handed a Stange of Kolsch. 
Indeed. Did I do well? Yes. Your bitter will come in a pint glass in London, and in Brussels, you'll be handed a tulip glass. On today's show, we're going to dive into the thorny thicket of beer glassware. We've got some on hand, and we'll discuss which is appropriate, as well as some of the features that serve different purposes in each. So this is good because these days in brew pubs or, or good beer places, uh, depending on the beer you order, you'll get it in different glassware. And sometimes sometimes we'll say, oh, you'll get a snifter of this, or you get a pint of that. Yeah. And then you might wonder, well, why? And so I have the beer the beer expert on hand tell us. And increasingly, that's a good that that is happening. It's a good thing. And uh, until very recently, uh, you, the only thing you would ever get it in was a shaker pint, the nearly cylindrical, ugly glass that was designed to mix drinks with. Yeah, and maybe at some point we can talk. We'll, about we'll the definitely hon- talk about that. The pipe <laughs> project that you had. Oh, it's true. We haven't mentioned that probably in the entire podcast. No, because I think that ship has sailed, but. It was good at the time. I yeah, think that I ship won. Has sailed because yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fight the power, man. Yeah, You're yeah. sweet. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk about glassware in a moment, but before we do, we should get to the news. A cool festival is happening in Portland this Sunday, March eighth, called She Brew. The event features an invitational of 10 local female homebrewers and more than 30 professional female makers of beer, cider, and mead, with most creating specialties exclusively for the festival. It is in its sixth year and has become one of the main change agents in the very masculine beer world. You can learn more about times and tickets at shebrew.beer. Did you know that there was a, I didn't a know. dot beer? That's I know. why I paused for a second. There's a dot beer domain now? There's a dot beer domain. Everybody's rushing to get that one of those, aren't they? Apparently not, since we've never seen one before. Well, yeah, I mean, that's true yeah. at this point. Uh, but y- it's cool. Yeah, this is cool. So if you go back way back into the archives uh, of the Beer Vana podcast, mm-hmm. you'll find our interview with some of the um, uh, female brewers of note in, in- Portland. Uh, and uh, others, including uh, the owner, the former owner of oh, that's uh, true, uh, Cerveza. Yeah, this was a while ago. Yeah, <laughs> so you have to dig pretty deep in the archives. You know, the audio quality will be sufficiently diminished. <laughs> but it was one of my uh, favorite. I think my favorite podcast we've ever done. So it was. Yeah, we talked about the Pink Boot Society. Yeah, and at the time, there were maybe three or four women working in beer in Portland, in, on the brewing side, the production side. Um, and it's really changed. And we have a list of the names of the women who are going to be competing here. And this is not exhaustive. There are other, these are all uh, brewers. They do not include uh, cider makers or mead makers. Um, and it's not exhaustive. These are just the ones competing. But just listen to all these names. It's actually kind of a wonderful thing to to hear. Yeah. And my apologies in advance if I, if I massacre one of these names. But Anne Aviles. Natalie Baldwin, uh, Anne, Anne Avila's from Breakside, Natalie Baldwin from Breakside, Tonya Cornett from Ten Barrel, Jen House from Double Mountain, Sonia Marie Leakum from Leakum Brewing, Kat West from Pelican, Lindsay Rep from McMinimins Edgefield, Raquel Chappell from McMinimins Edgefield, Jan Kent from McMinimins Thompson, Jenny Ag- uh, Augello, I guess, from McMinimins Hillside, Annie, uh, Anna Buxton from Modern Times, Melanie uh, Betty from Spider City and Bend, Madeline McCarthy from Migration, Gracie Nelson from Migration, Lisa Allen from Heater Allen, Lindsay McIntosh from Moonship, uh, Lara Hargrave from Great Notion, Courtney Lacey from Portland Brewing, Lee Hegeman from Groundbreaker, 
Kelsey Gable from Wayfinder, Kylie Gwynn from Ninkazi, Kaylin Gibbons from Widmer, Danielle Redman from Hotworks, and Felicia Renninger from Montavilla. Montavilla, sorry. Uh, yeah, and we had when we when we did that podcast, we had Lee and Natalie on, so they were two of the folks that were on that one. And they had a lot to say, and they're cool people. Yeah, uh, but again, it's just a lot of it's a lot of women now. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what the percentage is. It's probably still pretty small, but that's a you know, you you're starting to fill up a pub if you bring all the uh, female brewers into one. Well, now. it's growing and it's great, and network effects I think are important. We have the same problem in economics, by the way. There are very few, relatively few, female economists sure. uh, and academics, uh, in particular. <clears throat> and so it's a it's a struggle. There's always a cart and a horse problem when we're trying to hire a new professor. Um, and uh, I think there is uh, networking makes a big makes a big difference. So these kinds of events showing other women that you can be part of this industry and participate is uh, really important. Yeah, and and these kinds of programs uh, uh, like Shebrew, which puts people actually in contact with female brewers and makes them see that you know, this is a thing, <laughs> right? you know, uh, to break down that, that conceptual wall. And then, uh, the pink boots society, which was, which was started here in Portland right. and is now an international organization is another way for women to work together, uh, and raise their visibility and support each other, which is another supportive thing that helps like you, you, when you have something that is so disproportional like this, the barriers to entry are really hard to overcome. So you need to have supportive structures and, and we're starting to see those come up and we're, as a consequence, we're seeing all these women who are now in the industry. So it's fantastic. Yeah, it is. All right. All right. The second item uh, is, uh, as of this morning, the novel coronavirus, coronavirus COVID-19 has begun to take a serious toll in the Puget Sound area. There are currently 39 cases in the state and 10 dead. California had its first death and Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state emergency. In all, there are 163 confirmed cases in 18 states. This is a far lower number than in China, Italy, or South Korea, but the federal government's slow and haphazard response suggests those numbers understate the actual crisis. Uh, and of course, uh, this is we're reading this on uh, March 5th, so I'm sure the numbers will be higher by the time you listen to it. Yeah. Uh, this could begin affecting many retail businesses, including uh, with those within the beer industry. And uh, I, I actually put this in here because I wanted to ask you a question about the coronavirus. It, it just occurred to me I was sitting in a bar over the weekend, <laughs> which was totally packed. It was really, really packed. Yeah. And um, which was surprising because it was early March and it's not actually a, a great time to for big crowds in the pub, but it occurred to me that it wouldn't take very much for that crowd to completely empty out. And it's been two months that this has been afflicting China uh, and very, yeah. very few retail establishments are going to be able to survive, you know, unharmed for two months or more. And so I just wondered, what, you know, what are the economics of this? And what, what do you have? What, what, what do you have to tell? <laughs> what insight do you have? Well, I, think it's, I mean, I think the economics are pretty straightforward, which is that if people are not uh, going to work and not going to stores and restaurants and pubs, in this case, particularly <laughs> brew pubs, uh, then that economic activity stops. So um, I always, you know, in my class, I try to get people just to, to sort of see the forest for the trees and just talk about the really basics of economics, which is that economic growth comes from pro production, like, like wealth, income comes from production. And that can be production of a physical good, it can be production of a service or, uh, and so, you know, if, if people aren't, 
Uh, and then the, then the other side of that is that people have to, you know, it has to be production of things that people want. Um, so there has to be a market and buyers. And so the, the kinds of things that the coronavirus could potentially disrupt are the production side. So businesses that don't have employees to make the, make the stuff or do the stuff that causes production. Uh, and then the, the consumer side, people aren't out there buying the things they normally do or doing the activities they normally would. And so that can have uh, compounding effects too, because, you know, part of what we talk about in terms of uh, economic activity is just the circulation of money. So um, mm-hmm. the more that money circulates, sort of the more that it, it, it impacts, because money is just the medium, right? So the exchange is what matters. So exchanges need to happen. Hmm. So uh, I think it's a reasonable worry, because if the crisis uh, uh deepens, I suppose is the best word for it, then people might start avoiding areas of, of great social interaction. Uh, and the pub is one of the biggest bars and pubs or one of the biggest areas where you expect a lot of social interaction. And so if people start right. avoiding those, then I think, yeah, there could be a, a significant impact on the industry. The other side of it, though, I'll just say is that <clears throat> we live in a country that has very, very weak social safety net. And these are industries, right. brewing, brew pubs, restaurants, bars. These are industries that don't have a lot of good worker protections, healthcare, things like that. Right. And so if you think about the impact it would have on someone to get sick, the cost of hospitalization, if it's really bad, or, the med- or medical care, uh, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to sort of go through extra efforts to avoid contact because the 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 potential costs are a lot higher than if you were in a society where your medical bills would be covered and 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 medical care was taken care of by the state. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we definitely have a tattered safety net here. Yeah, and so I don't know how much that weakness is, would would affect, but I imagine that that's that's a serious concern. So, you know, if I am if I'm running a brew pub, let's say, and I have employees, you know, a wait staff and a serving staff uh, that have minimal or no, or no healthcare, then, you know, I'm not going to, uh, push them coming to work if there's a, if, you know, if coronavirus is in the community. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a significant, uh, a potentially significant problem. I think at this point there's still, we're still in the early days and we'll see, but, but yeah, I think it's actually something that people should, uh, should be concerned about. I did a little reading and I have a cool thing that I learned from an economist. You want to hear? Yeah. Uh, it was an English economist and he pointed out that there are different kinds of transactions. Um, things like, uh, uh when you're making goods that like, like cell phones, mm-hmm. um, the, the supply chain can slow that down and affect it. But eventually, uh, he said that the evidence is in, in a court, like the next quarter mm-hmm. there's makeup buying. Yeah. So, so a lot of times the, the overall effect on the economy is lower for that. Right. But then he talked about social transactions like you were describing and you don't, you don't make up for the pub visits. You, you go didn't to go. three pubs in, in a week because you didn't go last two months. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's a good point. Yeah. And then think about that. Uh, yeah. And that's actually, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about recessions and recoveries and kind of a classic Keynesian story is that <clears throat> in recessions, people just uh, start withholding spending on lots of things, including like durables. You know, you might not get your house re-roofed. You might not replace your refrigerator that's leaking and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But after a while, you can't put that off any longer. And so part of the recovery is that people can no longer put off those big investments and start spending that way. But yeah, that's not, you know, that's not the kind of restaurant brew pub thing we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't get made up. Yeah. So it's a good point. Yeah. Well, you know, economists are smart sometimes it looks like. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's a good point that you brought this up just <laughs> thinking about how it's going to affect the beer industry. Cause yeah. 
It's uh, not nothing. Brewery, breweries are probably reasonably safe places, right? Because they're just covered in caustic and other antibacterial <laughs> like germs are not yeah. welcome in breweries. Actually, uh, Tyler Brown at, at uh, Barley Browns made a comment on social media about that. He said, I feel safer in my it's brewery. It's probably the safest place yeah. to be. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and he, he identified completely the, disinfected. <laughs> the giant disinfection. So maybe yeah. that's that's better from the brewing side. But yeah, I'm worried a little bit about the pub side. I, I think uh, it, there could be an effect. I do think that that's probably, I imagine it'll be, um, if it becomes a real social issue it'll be a way you know a big wave for you know for a number of weeks and then and then it'll subside people can't just i don't think people are going to hold up in their houses for months and months right that's right people will start taking risks yeah after a while or they'll they'll be less uh, risk averse later yeah on. and when more is known about the true impact of the virus and its communicability and its uh and its mortality rate then then people will be able to make more rational decisions yeah <clears throat> so. scary times and unfortunate so yeah. Be, be safe, everyone. Yeah. Wash your hands. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we turn to our main topic, which is glassware. And yeah. I see that you've brought a number of varieties of glasses. Uh, and we joked uh, as we were prepping for this uh, uh, podcast that my most memorable glassware experience was in my Munich beer garden when I got the Moss, the big one liter glass that's big and heavy and gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and apparently, did, have you heard it, heard about this story? Maybe you told me this story, but I think I also heard it from my German hosts and family uh, that uh, they, they they charge you a deposit when you get these moss glasses in the beer garden. Oh, you? I you, no, I don't know about this. I think you, somebody told you. Must have been the one who told. Me. <laughs> Maybe I told you this. So my German family. So this is you know this is just anecdotal. Correct me if I'm wrong. Said that one of the. Re- reasons i thought that people the reason they did that was people would grab these glasses and take them home and bring them to souvenirs and stuff but no apparently the reason they did this according to them at least is that there was this drinking game where you would uh cheers each other by clinking your glasses together and the and the uh the challenge was to clink them so hard that they would smash (laughs) and so apparently this became a thing and so people were just like they were smashing their mosses together (laughs) And destroying them, so they have to start charging a deposit. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I don't know. It's a great story. If it's apocryphal, please don't let me know. That's right. Too good to check. <laughs> to keep, too, to, keep it to yourself. Some stories are too good to check. All right. Well, well, that's that's my introduction to glassware. But why don't you <laughs> why don't you take it away here? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, there's a million different kinds of glassware out there, and if you've uh, been. So, Pubs in the United States don't necessarily go to a lot of, they don't have a lot of choices. But if you go to a place like uh, Brussels, for example, and you yeah. go into a, a, a cafe there, you'll get a glass that is designed by and suited for the particular beer you order. And they have all these different glassware and they mm. bring it out and it might be a goblet or a tulip or more uh, like a the the uh, uh, lambic types come in these kind of tumblers. Right. Um, that was a, a characteristic of that area. So it's interesting that, you know, and then if you go to, like you mentioned, if you go to Munich, they have um, I, either the the big steins uh, or the, what are becoming more and more common in the United States, those kind of elegant ones that, that I'm, 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 Doing it, I'm, I'm doing yeah. a visual here. Should, which I, is, should I describe your hand motions? <laughs> <laughs> Super not helpful. Uh, they're sort of uh, cylindrical, but they they taper up, and then when they get about two thirds the way up, they they come back in slightly. Right. Those are known as Willy Beckers. Those those are German, and they are really common. So, and then there's the of course the English pint glass, and all these glasses, and you ask the question, 
where do they come from and what is their function? Um, and we're going to talk about that now. So um, should, we, it, it's a lot of material to get through and I don't, we haven't really decided how we're going to do it. So should we just dive in? We should just dive in and we'll just point out that in our discussion about how we're going to do, how we're going to do the show, uh, we were acutely aware that we were going to have to try and describe glasses uh, without having any visuals. So that the, <laughs> the limitations of the medium suggest that we're going to, uh, I'll do my best, in other words, to describe these glasses. But I think that there's a couple of main features that we can sort of talk about and and uh, focus on that as well. But how do you want to get started? Well, I want to try it. You want to try an experiment. You're a scientific guy. <laughs> yeah, I always like experiments. Uh, we have two glasses here. One that has, uh, they're both German, in fact. Uh, one is uh, a Polaner, um, kind of a classic Stein. Uh, and it has thick walls and they're kind of faceted. Yeah. It's pretty. And it's a mug style. So it has a handle. Right. And big faceted glass. And then we have another one that's a the Stange, which... Um, when I Googled this, and I, I've, I would love a German to see if this is an exact translation. Stange means pole, and mm -hmm. it makes sense because it's the shape of a pole. It's exactly cylindrical, um, and it, it, of course, has a top uh, that's open at the top. But um, the Stange is characteristic of uh, Kolsch and Altbier, which uh, they're slightly different sizes. The one I have is a big old American size. They're uh -huh. much smaller, actually, in, in Germany. Yeah. But I was thinking if we poured beer into both of these and let them sit for a while, and then we could check back and see which one uh, had kept the beer colder longer. Because the design of the thick-walled glass is to keep your beer cooler when you're sitting out there under the hot Bavarian sun in All the right, summer. All right, let's do it. So the Stange is, uh, is sort of a tall, thin, but th yeah, very thin glass, but also a thin... Uh, thin in width, but also the glass itself is quite thin. Uh, it's very elegant. It uh, is. And uh, in 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 Cologne, I suppose that you get these brought to you in trays continuously as as you drink, right? Totally. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to pour a Hefeweizen. Yeah. In, in in these beers. Why not? Uh, because I've got one. Uh, there, <laughs> neither one of these is a Hefeweizen glass, and. Um, you should uh, pour it into the appropriate glassware. And a Hefeweizen glass, Hefeweizen glass, for those who have not been to Bavaria, is called a vase. And it's a very elegant kind of swoopy thing. Uh, big bulb at the top, narrow foot at the bottom. And uh, you get a big pillowy head on it. Um, but we're not going to use that. Uh, and the Oh, and I have some cool beer here that people have sent me. And I want to give a call call out to them. We have Wallen Pop Popak? Popak? <laughs> Wallen Popak. Wallen Popak from uh, Holly, Pennsylvania. Nice. And uh, it's a brewery I don't know anything about, uh, except that they sent me another beer with along, besides this one, which was a, a coffee IPA, which I drank last night, and it was very nice. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, while you're doing this, why don't we talk about some of the functions of the glass? We already, we, you just got into one thing, which is there's thick glass and there's thin glass. And thick glass, uh, we'll find out, our experiment is... <clears throat> because the theory is that it does a better job insulating the beer, keeping yeah. it cold. So if you're in a Munich beer garden in the summer and you have a big <laughs> big moss of Hellas, like I did, uh, it might take you a little while <laughs> to drink a liter of beer, uh, as it did for me. Um, and so you want to keep that beer reasonably cool. And so that's a particularly good idea. And then these little uh, Stange, this one, as you said, it's bigger, but the ones in Kölner are fairly small. And yeah. so you, you drink it fairly quickly, so you don't need to worry about it keeping the beer cold as much. Yeah, they're, uh, they're 
they're really tiny and the, the idea is you drink them fast. So mm. they come around and you drink it and the second that it looks like your glass is about to be empty, the They'll waiter another one. Yeah, the waiter just drops another one there right. and, and ticks your your beer mat and yep. you just keep going on and you, you have to be aware because if you don't want another one, you have to kind of wave <laughs> yeah, them off because yeah. you're going to get another this, one. This is the way it works in Brazil too. And I don't know what the, the signal, the signal in Brazil is you put your beer mat on top of your beer. Uh, and that's how you, that's how they know that you don't want, you don't want another, but, but it took me a little while to realize this the first time I was in Brazil. And so I kept, I kept sort of turning around and my beer glass would be magically filled. And I think, okay, so I haven't really had much beer yet. And so I just sort of keep turning around and see if it'll still be full. I was like, wow, I'm hardly drinking anything. And next thing you know, I'm rolling on the floor. Yeah. That's, that's how that goes. <laughs> uh, uh, so what do you, how do you signal that you, you don't want another uh, Kolsch when you're, when you're there? Well, there, you can actually put the beer mat on top of the glass so they know if okay. you're not being yeah, attentive. So that's, that's the Brazil thing. Uh, or you can just tell them get, no. Yeah. You can just give them a, you know, when, when you In see, Brazil, well, you can't tell them no. Oh, really? They'll keep coming. Yeah. No, they're, they're not, they're <laughs> not that insistent. They're, they're very good. They're very sneaky. They'll slip in while you're not looking. So this is, uh, has the classic Hefeweizen Ooh. nose. Yeah. It's got a nice banana. Little, I'm, get, I'm getting the clove. Little clove. Yeah. By the way, you have the, the, the mug and I have the Stangut. So the, the mug is also endowed with a handle, which is another way to keep it cool. So right. you your hand doesn't warm it up. That's right. And the the, the Stanga is mm. narrow and it has these thin walls, which means it exposes the beer really well. You can mm -hmm. see it really well. And Kolsch is this gorgeous colored beer, you know, gold like golden color and it has a nice head and you, you know the the visual aspect is a big part important part of it yeah and and as opposed to the faceted glass which which highlights some aspects but obscures others mm -hmm. so it kind of creates i don't know a little bit of a sparkle so the the color of the beer shines through the glass but you don't get that pure clear yeah and one thing that th this experiment will not reveal because <laughs> i've chosen a an opaque uh <laughs> style is uh if you have more volume it will appear deeper colored so uh, the smaller glass will expose, you know, if you've got a pale color, you really want to accentuate. You want to put right. it in a smaller glass. Uh, a thicker glass will make it appear darker. Darker, right. So it's really bright and lovely. Yeah. Uh, this is quite delightful beer, by the way. It is. Uh, it's very refreshing. Uh, I'm getting uh, a nice balance of banana and clove, which yep. I like. I don't yep. really like the ones that are super banana-y. Yep. I agree. And it's crisp and dry. It's not, it's not cloying, which is another thing that's critical for me. Yeah, I agree. No, I think it's a really nice, a nice uh, example of the good wheat character, mm -hmm. and it's got and it's a nice visually. It's quite nice. It's it's hazy, but a straw color and appropriate. Yeah, on our hazometer, that'd be like about a six. Yeah, five and a half, six. I'd yeah. say. Yeah, it's good looking beer. All right, so we're gonna let that now that we've tried it, we'll let these sit for a few minutes and yeah. see uh, how they go. All right, should we should we delve into Belgium and their whole weird glass thing? Uh, yeah. Or, or you had it. I think you were going to go a different direction. <laughs> well, I was going to talk about, this is, this is perfect. Cause I was going to, I'm sort of, I'm focusing a little bit more on features than actual glasses. Oh, cool. Uh, but as you delve into Bo Belgium, we can talk about the, the purpose of the stem. Yes. So, uh, I have two Belgian style glasses here. Mm -hmm. Both have stems, mm -hmm. but one has a very narrow top and one has a very wide top. Yeah. So, so one is a sort of real classic tulip glass. Yep. It has a stem. It has the real classic tulip shape. It's beautiful. Should we do the tulip then? Is that what? Yeah. If I'm a brewer, I'm thinking that's a wonderful glass to highlight my beer. 
Should we get maybe this one for the tulip? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We didn't really pick the beard for the glass. No, we we picked the beer that um, people have been sending me, which is very cool. We want to. <laughs> yeah, give you what's a shout nice out. about that is that it gets us out of the the Portland, Oregon, and the uh, and the Pacific Northwest uh, gravi- gravitational vortex we're in. Exactly. <laughs> and, so, we're, and so we're escaping it by by taking the the donations that are to your fridge. I have a synopsis from Two Roads, which is. Uh, Phil Markowski's brewery in Connecticut. Phil Markowski is, of course, the brewer who wrote the book on farmhouse ales. For those of you who know that book, um, it is uh, one of my favorite beer books. And he's kind of a, a legend because he is he was an early champion of uh, farmhouse beers when nobody was making them. Mm-hmm. This beer, however, is yeah, not. <laughs> uh, is a sour beer, a wild sour ale with red currant raspberry and cranberry. And we're going to pour this into the cool tulip glass. And apropos of our previous show, I wonder if that's mixed fermentation. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Or if it's all wild. There's not a ton of uh, info on the can. So it is a can, as you heard. Ooh, that's a pretty color. Oh. So th- so you could have poured this into the goblet. So one thing that you see here is, as I poured this, Patrick was the only one who could see this <laughs> to describe what happened. As I was pouring it in there, uh, it, it was rousing. It's quite effervescent. It roused yes. quite a good head. Yep. And as that head was forced into the narrow neck of the tulip, uh, it became, uh, it started to really like foam over. We could have had a foam over incident there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the cool things about the goblet and the reason that uh, certain beer styles are poured in the goblet is if you have a very open uh, oh, surface area. The opposite happens. The yeah, it'll allow that. Oh, see, like I'm learning stuff already. So if you have like, because often things like Saison and stuff will be very, it's like super effervescent. Yeah. And the, the Abbey styles the are Abbey often styles, that way. It's like yeah. this is the glass I have is an Orval. So you pour that sucker oh. out and, uh, and it allows it to dis, uh, yeah, the, the foam over doesn't happen as okay. easily. So the tulip glass is better for, for less effervescent beers. But it sure does. It sure does feature beer nicely. So this is a, a beer that has a kind of a a, a rosé color almost. Yeah, because it's red berries. But it, well, I would say it's even, kind of a mix. Darker. Yeah, it's a mix of the red, the red tint, and then the the sort of straw to amber, mm-hmm. maybe straw from the malt. Holy moly, that's a good beer. And so, yeah, it's quite. Um, you know, all I can do is hold stuff to a green screen. <laughs> But uh, there we go. There's a white door I can roll up to. It's a really lovely. And the thing about the tulip glass is it just kind of creates this wonderful light through it. Yeah, the, the tulip glass is nice because you get different uh, depths. So mm-hmm. you can look through one part of the glass and it's narrow and you can see the color, the color of a liquid at a narrow versus a deeper area. And that way you can really get a better sense of the, the, the color. Oh, that's a lovely beer. It is really, that's a really nice beer. And the thing about the stem, I never thought about this before, but since we're talking about appearance, the thing about the stem is it allows you to kind of see almost a, a 360 view of the beer because you get to see the bottom as well. It's true. And the stem, uh, again, it's like a handle. So you can hold the stem and not heat the, the beer up. Uh, right, if like you want wine. to. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, one of the cool things about the tulip, so when we, when we say a tulip glass, for those of you who are not familiar with what we're talking about, it's just, it's shaped exactly like a tulip. So it's got a bulb at the bottom, it narrows towards the neck and then it, uh, it fans out uh, at the rim. And it, it, when these beers are very effervescent, uh, and have a continuous head that is, that is coming up, right. uh, that's covering the top of the beer, uh, the tulip is cool because as you come across that lip, it'll allow you to get both head and, uh, 
liquid at the same time. So right. you can so you can always get a little bit of both. So for very foamy beers, that's a an added benefit. Ah, uh, that's a good good point. I didn't think about that. This glass does not this is a Rodenbach glass. Um, it does not have what what is known as a nucleation site. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to describe it because many do. Uh, nucleation site is is an is a uh, a rough etched piece at, uh, part of the the glass. Right. Uh, it's it's built into it, um, but a chip will do the same thing. Mm-hmm. It for some reason I don't actually know the physics here. Maybe you know the physics, but it causes <laughs> no. it causes the uh, carbon dioxide the gas to come release. Out, right? yeah, yeah, to come out of solution, and then it so it creates a little uh, constantly uh, a little. Thing of bubbles, stream of bubbles, yeah, stream of bubbles. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, the, the the nucleation sites are really nice, and and but I think it's the same principle, by the way, as the as the Diet Pepsi and the Mentos, by the way. Okay, in case you're in case, in case you I don't know because that's you got sugar and other. I don't know. No, no, I think it's just the carbonation and the rough surface of the Mentos actually is the one that it's kind of like a little nucleation pill that just creates this massive. Anyway. That's an interesting Somebody theory. correct me if I'm wrong again. I'm, but. <laughs> I'm, I bet anything we have people out there who know physics and chemistry and they know what's going on. So uh, I think Van tell, Havig, I think Van Havig should should uh, should chime in because it's I bet true. he's got he's uh, he's definitely uh okay, always so, got our back. <clears throat> so while we're talking about function, so we talked about the function of the tulip in the head. Uh and um one one thing I wanted to ask you is uh, uh aroma. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. aroma is big for wine glasses. Wine glasses always have this sort of closed top where it bends in at the top. Yeah. The tulip, of course, does the opposite. And these other two glasses that we've had so far are just straight. Uh, so uh, is there a thought about aroma in different glassware? Yeah, there is. Um, aroma is, of course, a huge part of beer. It is the uh, – or it's a huge part of flavor. It's actually the most important part of flavor. And so – Getting the aroma of the beer. If you're Rob, this is your whole point about not drinking beer out of a can. Yes, uh, aroma is my favorite part. So. Exactly. So we talked about that a lot. And and if you have a bulb uh, that captures the uh, aroma and concentrates the aroma at the nose, uh-huh. at the ortho nasal uh, yes. part of the the whole consumption process, that is the front of the nose. Um, yeah, it can help. It can help increase the pleasure. And actually, although the tulip does open up, it it is it's got a bulb down below, and right. I think when you put your nose in there, it does have a narrower top. Yeah, it does kind of capture it in there. I and there's, think so, yeah. There's a similar glass to the tulip called a snifter, which is kind of the same shape, but instead of flaring out at the top, mm-hmm. it just it just ends uh, without the flare out. Yeah, more like a wine glass. Yeah, but it comes in a little bit more tightly. Right, you and think brandy. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's like a brandy snifter, and they're they're uh, beer glasses that do the same thing, and those are the, by far the best at capturing the aroma. Right. Um, so depending on the beer, for example, these German beer glasses, the kinds of beer we're talking about aren't uh, well. Okay, we put a, <laughs> we put a Hefeweizen in there, but but uh, you know a Helles and a Pilsner um, aroma is less of a big feature, and so having these sort of straight glasses, especially this the Helles the Stanga is. Is not going to give you a whole lot of aroma unless you really stick your nose in there. But as you're drinking, your nose is not even in the glass. That's right. Your gla- your nose is outside the glass. Uh, I think, I think it really depends on the. It, it goes to show that a lot of this glassware was developed by uh, people who are drinking a particular kind of beer. Right. Right. So it it it's form and function. And if you've got, if we talk about IPA, for example, American IPA. The need to concentrate the the aromas of American IPAs is not very 
important, right? It's just such an aromatic style that it's, a, you know, it's yeah. just going to waft out no matter what. So I think um, American IPAs are not typically served in uh, uh, classes that have bulbs at the top to try to capture the subtle uh, aromas that might be in there. Yeah. Where some of the Belgian beers um, do have a much more subtle aroma and, and uh, you might want to uh, have those more present to the to the nose and the experience. Right. All right, Jeff, I'm going to take a break here yep. so that we can do our sponsorship message. Uh, before we go any further, we'd like to thank Breakside Brewery for sponsoring the Beer Vana Show. In 2020, Breakside is launching a new series of one-off IPAs, including Hail Nelson. Available in cans and on draft, Hail Nelson is West Coast IPA featuring New Zealand hops and anchored by Nelson Salvin. It features notes of lime, white wine, and tropical fruit, highlighting the character of hops grown in the South Pacific. This is probably in your wheelhouse. This is absolutely in my wheelhouse. <laughs> but but you did me a you didn't do me any favors by by taking the script over on the opposite side of the page. Yeah, sorry about like, that. I think that's a rookie mistake. Besides, two, I don't think a, like it ain't no mistake. You I look, knew what I was doing. You, you look at like you broadcast news. They're never like flipping the page over. It's all like all on one side, just like multiple pages on one side. Man, because flipping the page over, like that paper is nothing to do with anything. That's, a, the paper is theatrics. They have teleprompters. What when when is X Ray going to get us a teleprompter, oh, man? You, that's what we really need. You threw me under the bus here, but. Let's talk about the beer. This sounds amazing. We had that, I had that beer, um, <laughs> that Thornbridge beer. I can't remember what it was called now. It's uh, a Kipling. They're Kipling yeah. pale ale that had some kind of New Zealand hop. And it was just a lovely, just, I love the, I love the New Zealand, the there, there New are Zealand certain, hop profile. There are certain beers in our, in our lifetime that uh, expose us to a whole new dimension. It's like walking into a new world. And for the, both of us, uh, when we had that Kipling beer, uh, it, which is, uh, I it's it's pretty much a classic bitter, I think, right? It's like four percent or something, but it just has a lot of uh, South Pacific hops, and yeah, uh, we both it made a strong impression on both of us. Positive for you and negative for me. Uh, <laughs> I know you what, don't like the notes. So. One of the tasting notes that um, Breakside had was a musk, and. <laughs> Um, Nelson Sauvin definitely has a musky note. And if your nose is sensitive to that, it will taste more musky. And if your nose is not sensitive, you get much more of those wine grapes. So, mm -hmm. uh, I think people will sort themselves based on whether they like that quality. So, yeah, uh, well, I love it. it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. It, it, uh, uh, it will certainly be something to check out. Sometimes I like them. If the musk is low, then I'm, I'm more high on them. But right. um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to track that down and give it a shot. Uh, all right, so back to the glassware. Glass of glassware. <laughs> back to the glassware. Let's glass to the backware. I think we should go for the uh, uh, one of these goblets. All right, so you have the Orval goblet here. I do. It's got a thick stem and a big, wide, open top. This is one of the classic. Of you know, there's there's a few glasses out there that are super classic that are associated with a particular brewery, and the Orval glass uh, is its own. It was designed. Um, in kind of an early effort of branding, um, back, I think in like the fifties or something, they designed this class and they, they had, uh, a particular designer come in and do it. And so, and it's, they've had it ever since and it's, it's iconic. So we'll get a picture of that maybe and use it for the, uh, cover page for this. So, so, a big effervescent beers, that was part of it. Yeah. What else? Uh, you know, part. <laughs> For you on the spot. <laughs> uh, well, I think part of it is uh, all the Trappist beers have goblets. Mm -hmm. So 
you're going to have a lot of effervescence in those beers. So that's part of it. But the other thing yeah. is, right, they're Trappist. Yeah. So you're going to, you're getting an ecclesiastic look right here. This is it's true. It's a, like sort a of chalice. a chalice. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it really reminds you what, of what the beer is. And they're not uh, huge glasses. These are, these are generally high alcohol beers. So you don't want a ton. Right. And I think this is probably, uh, this would, this would hold uh, a bottle of Orval perfectly. I mm. think they're designed for that. I see. Yeah. So we will, uh, we're going to, we're going to pour in the, the threes. The dictator is the people, which is one of the most obscure names. I have no idea what that means, <laughs> but I like it. Wait a minute. So who is this? Threes Brewing? Threes Brewing in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, New York. Nice. Oh, this is actually an appropriate beer for the class. Look at that foam. Yeah. So if I had tried to pour that into a, uh, more narrow glass, we'd have been in trouble. Yeah. I've been a big head. But now it's all dissipated. Wait a minute. What kind of beer is this? <laughs> Did you say? It's uh, some kind of saison. It's a wheat saison Asian oak. There you go. Because I know how to read labels. You take a risk when you just bring a bunch of random beers from your fridge. Uh, yeah, and you don't want to slag off breweries that... Yeah. That, but I love threes. Threes? But we've got lucky. You may not You may not remember or know threes, but they're famous kind of for... Uh, I know uh, threes. Uh, their pills are vleet and... Um, I... Really, they were the brewery that impressed me the most when I was in New York last. Um, but I, I didn't really Ooh. know these beers. Um, That's outstanding. But it is outstanding. Oh, that is so good. Yeah. Ah. That's, so, not a, that's a pretty good presentation in that glass, by the way. I think, it, I think it's exactly the glass you'd want to serve it in. The, so I have, a, I have another thought about this glass, which is it really, because it kind of makes the beer uh, sort of wider and flatter, it lets in a lot of light. Mm. So for darker beers, I think it would really expose their color, don't you think? Yeah, that's right. Um, and in here you have a, a really sharp taper. So again, you're going to see, uh, and you can see it in, in this glass as well, uh, it's, it looks darker at the top and it looks much paler at the bottom. And, and with a darker beer, you would begin to be able to see light coming through at that narrow taper. Yeah. Um, this, by the way, this is a very vi vinous uh, kind of white wine uh, saison. Yeah, it says Asian oak, and I'm, I'm guessing that it's uh, white not, wine, not virgin oak, but yeah, white wine barrel. Yeah, my yeah. my guess so too. Yeah, really nice. Um, boy, it has a tiny bit of acidity, but uh, mm. yeah, that's really nice. It's uh, it's one of these mixed fermentation sours, I think, that we've been that we talked about a while ago that are so good. Yeah, I think you're right. <clears throat> good well, job, threes. <laughs> well, good job, Jeff, for bringing in some good beers. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get let's get crude. Yeah, let's talk about the shaker pint. All right, uh, you, should we throw an American beer in that one? We should throw an American beer in, <laughs> in a shaker pint. <laughs> so, so how did the shaker pint become the thing of the American pub? It's kind of going away, I think. Now it's yeah. people are getting a little more sophisticated with it. But the shaker pint for a long time was the glass, and so if you're uh, if you know what we're talking about, it's the, the sort of standard pub glass that's got straight sides that um, taper down to the bottom slightly. Uh, it's called a shaker pint because it was an, originally developed for mixed drinks, right? For Yeah, I don't know if it was developed that way, but bartenders immediately started using it that way. They mm -hmm. would use the shaker, and instead of using the top, they would use a, a, a shaker pint glass, which is very thick wall, right. durable. Right, so like the stainless steel shaker yeah. that you put the glass in, and then you can stick the... You can invert the the shaker pint glass and stick it on the top, and then you can just shake it all up together, and then you just flip it over, and there you go. Yep. And these things are 
incredibly durable. So for a, from a restaurant's point of view, they're fantastic. And they're, they're stackable. Can, yeah, they're stackable. Durable, stackable. They're just a, a real utilitarian glassware. From the pub side, they're amazing. They're yeah. like the perfect glass. But from a from a presentation and drinker's perspective, they're pretty darn crude. They're uh, all right. I, I just they're never right. like I'm going to defend the shaker pint a little bit. But but let's let's segue for a quick second about the, the Honest Pint pro- project. So this thing about the shaker pint is that you don't always know what you get. Yeah. Uh, some of these are 16 ounces. I think more and more yeah. because more and more people were sh- sounding the alarm. Yeah, uh, They're 16 ounces. If you fill the glass right up to the top to and the have top. no head, yeah. uh, but some of them are actually only 14 ounces and uh, they sell them as pints. So it used to be uh, 10 or 20 years ago and more, you'd walk into a pub and you'd order a pint of beer and they would bring you sometimes a glass that would only hold 14 ounces at its maximum. That's right. Uh, and then it would have one or two ounces of head. And so you're getting 12 ounces and they're calling it a pint. Yeah. So, a here's a little, yeah so here's a little beeronomic segue, which is there's not a whole lot of regulation about this. Like uh, there's not a standard by which you have to uh, adhere to if you call it a pint of, of beer. That's right. Uh, which is shocking. It is. And disturbing. <laughs> and and in some some restaurants you would have pint glasses that were the 14 ounces and the 16 ounces so one customer may get a 14 ounce glass <laughs> and even another, know. yeah and you wouldn't even know yeah and by the way if you get if you get one a 14 and a 16 and put them side by side it's almost impossible to know because it doesn't take much change in the dimensions yeah. or the thickness of the bottom or whatever yeah. to change that that volume so this is where we can actually jump the pond uh hop the pond and go over to uh, jolly old England, yeah. where uh, a typical pint glass in England often looks one of two ways. One is one that has a little um, belt at the top. I don't know what you call that. What's the proper term for that little bulge? Uh, I don't know what the, the bulge top. is called, but the glass is called a nonic. Ah. And, and this is a fascinating thing. You know why it's called nonic? No. It seems really queer, right? Yes. It's because it comes from no nick. That bulge was not for the beer. It was so that when you put the glass when you stacked the glass, right. the bulges would 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 stack together, them. and they wouldn't nick, they wouldn't chip that ah. way, and so they called them no nick, and it eventually became nonic. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so this is kind of your classic imperial pint glass, right? The the classic <laughs> shape of the of the uh, British pint. But what's brilliant, and I know this is British, I think the Germans do this too. What's brilliant about it is that in in England for a long time it was required. I think I don't know if it still is that they marked the volume, mm-hmm. so where the pint actually. So the pint glass is actually more than imperial pint. Uh, typically, it's and then it has the etched uh, marking where a pint uh, of beer is, and so you yep. Know, and f- now we, we're seeing that so much more in America. I, I have to say, I'm so pleased that Americans have really caught up with that. A lot of times, it'll be marked with a 16 ounce line because that's what our right. That's what people think of here. Fine, I don't care what you do. Just you have to be transparent. Yeah, yeah. And we're, I think I think more and more. Uh, that's that's really the standard. Whether it's marked or not, they they do come in glasses that could yeah. be marked. And, and yeah, and for a while you had this thing called the Honest Pint Project. Maybe it still sort of exists notionally, but uh, you really pop, you really publicize this issue about volumes and, and and glasses. And so I give you a lot of credit for for raising awareness among punters. Thank you. Yeah, a decade ago or so, I was I actually had a thing where I would certify pubs if they had a, an Honest Pint, and uh, I gave them a little certification and and a thing they could post in their pub. And I, I think. You know, I don't think it 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 had the effect of uh, a, a policing thing. It was mostly the I think it functioned mostly as an awareness raising exactly. thing. Yeah, and uh, I you know 
I don't think that it was necessarily in most publicans' mind that to screw their customers. They no. were just buying the typical glass where you open yeah. a pub, you buy shaker pints. And then with awareness, they're thinking, you know, maybe it's better if I... But it's a little funny more how far behind we were, like the UK and, and other places, thinking about actually selling a specific volume of a good. And so now, you know, you typically see menus have... Uh, specific volumes when they say, and they have pricing based on specific volumes, excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And then often, as as you mentioned, we'll see glassware now that's marked, um, uh, which is all all good news. This, this is t- particularly common in Portland. I don't know if it's true other parts of the US, so let us know. Yeah, I would like to know that too. I wonder if, if Portland is a little bit ahead and and if so, maybe I get credit for it. Yeah. Um, and if it's not at all ahead, then I had no effect on anything. But uh <laughs> But the shaker pint <laughs> and the British nonic, and then this version, which is what do you call this one? I I call that either the Irish pint glass or like the uh, the tulip pint because it has a little bit of a tulip shape as well. Yeah. So this is the, the the three of them are similar in the following way that the base is smaller than the rim, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's close to being sort of a straight uh, uh, shot up. The the pint glass is is straight. The the nonic has a little bulge, and this one just has a sort of a subtle wave. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of all the glasses? Uh, I know that you you have glass right at your house. Do you prefer a particular glass that you that's your go to? Uh, I, I I don't have a lot of glassware. I have very limited glassware. I have like the English pint style, the Nonix, uh-huh. and the and the uh, and the shaker pints. Yeah. And I'll tell you what matters to me is that my English pint glasses are um, uh, twenty ounce essentially. <clears throat> They're not true imperial pint glasses unfortunately uh, but um your uh, brewer's union was but it's gone you, sh- yeah, you shattered it i know there's one place in oregon that really uh highlighted it in fact would make an imperial pint and a marked one so the actual glass was even more than a pearl pint anyway uh but i digress yes the point for me is that if i'm having a 12 ounce beer i actually prefer the shaker pint because it fills it up uh-huh that, uh, with, with a head, it's perfect. That's why this glass that I brought, uh, I got when I when I did my Zeugel work thing at Zeugel House. They give you the glass, yeah, uh, and it's it's a it's not twelve ounces, but if you pour a twelve ounce glass uh, beer in that, it's about right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, to me, the uh, and I'm holding up the tulip pint, uh, the, the Irish pint glass. Uh, that's the most elegant style of beer. Uh, that's my very favorite glass right there. I yeah. love that one. Yeah, I do like that one as well. I used to have one like that. Uh, my so the bigger glass where. Uh, is great, but if you pour a twelve ounce beer in it, it only fills about two thirds full, and I just find that sad. Yeah, so I, I guess I get sad if I do that. So that's the, I feel I, that way too. I, I would actually use a rather use a smaller glass. Yes. and have some beer left in the bottle. Yeah, I don't like pouring out my beer and then having a you know a whole lot of space left over. That that doesn't that doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, it really bothers me too. That is so interesting. I wonder if that's <laughs> typical with everybody. We've never. I don't think we've ever had that no, conversation. No, uh, Yeah. So. Um, so sometimes uh, I'll just go ahead and, and get like two cans. If I'm doing 12 ounces uh, and I'm using a big glass, I'll just get two cans out and I'll pour and I'll fill it up and then I'll have a little, you know, like a half a can left over to, to, to fill it again. But, but in my case, I really like aroma. So I like the big open top so I can stick my nose in there as yeah. I'm drinking. Yeah. Um, and most of my beers are either uh, big sort of aroma fueled IPA kind of beers or German lagers where, you know, um, maybe I'm going to be, uh, 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 I don't know, not, not, um, dismissive, but 
I feel like it doesn't matter as much. Like the, the, the aroma isn't quite as big a thing. So whether I have a narrow glass or a big glass uh, or a wide open glass. So I think, in other words, I think both beers work well in those glasses. I think that's right. So we didn't mention, uh, I poured out the American beer I poured out into oh, this right. glass. Yeah, was, we totally, uh, we totally did. <laughs> it was Anchor Steam. But in a can. In a can. They sent me a can of Anchor Steam. Anchor Steam is now in cans. And uh, this is a beer you don't have uh, every day, most people. Um, and it's such an interesting beer. Um, every time I come back to it, it's it's kind of a, I, I'm in a different place in my beer journey and it's always in the same place. And so it's interesting. <laughs> it's like a new beer every time. Well, so Anchor Steam holds a special place in my heart because Anchor Steam is like the first ever craft beer. Sure. That I had uh, ever. And it was for a while, it was kind of like a badge of honor for me. Like this is, I'm an Anchor Steam guy. Totally. Um, yeah. It, it tastes to me very much American now. Uh, it, it used to be, Steam beer is its own weird thing, so it was never it never really tasted like anything. But now we've gotten so far down the road, uh, away from the traditional American beers of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, like this beer was. That it's it's got, so weird that it ages well, doesn't it? Because it's just its own thing. It's its own thing, but it's but it you know it's got the caramel malt and it's got. Uh, I gotta say, it's so much better in a can. <laughs> no, really. I mean, it's. I think it's. Well, it's, they did just send me the the beer too, nice and fresh. Uh, so for the uninitiated, since we're talking about it, just quickly, what is a steam beer? Steam beer is made with, uh, lager yeast, but, uh, fermented at, uh, ale temperatures. Yes. It was a characteristic of the crude days of San Francisco back in the, uh, gold mine days. Mm -hmm. The brewer, the breweries threw their beer, their, uh, breweries up really fast and they fermented fast and they got their beer to market fast and yeah. it was crude rough beer mm -hmm. um that uh see, the miners enjoyed, could drink see when i was young i enjoyed the whole story the whole idea of it so that's why anchor steam i sort of latched onto i was like so i'd always like you know if i was going to a party this is what i bring i bring a six pack of anchor steam it's always a classic you can never go wrong mm. all right we should come back to our the first two glasses we poured okay see if they're see if the coldness theory works out and then uh, wrap <laughs> course, this up. Of course, a good scientific experiment might actually have some kind of instrumentation, but uh, instead of that, we'll just use our <clears throat> whatever, <laughs> hands, mouths. You've homebrewed with me. You know what I think about instruments. <laughs> All right, so there goes, I just tried the first one and it's, uh, it's warmed up for sure. Hey, okay, so I have to, we have to, we have to go back in time. What is your... Uh, I have a, a father. I don't know. They're kind of both the same. I have a father-in-law who 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 uh, religiously does this, and but this is really a, a sort of a uh, from a bygone era, which is freezing, putting your glassware in the freezer. As a, such a bad idea. <laughs> such a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> he does it. He's very proud. He serves me this beer in a frozen glass, and I and I uh, uh, hopefully he doesn't listen to this pod. Uh, and I smile politely, but think, oh, yeah. what have you done? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, different strokes. Back in the days of Schlitz and yeah, there, it, there were you wouldn't you didn't really want to taste it. So back in the back in the really old days, they would actually kind of coat it with water, so it was it had a it had a, like frost a frosty mug, the whole frosty mug thing. It frosts by itself. You don't need to coat it with water. Uh, well, they 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 can, but they I think they used to really because it used to really be like thick, and that's just unpleasant, and it puts water in the beer and all that. But so here's a little scientific. But the other thing is, you know, a lot of those do have handles, just to finish answering yeah. the question. In my, my perspective, you can answer yours too. I don't want to grab onto an icy handle. <laughs> I mean, you're taking it right out of the fridge. It's going to be fine. So cold, cold suppresses flavor. So and cold, yeah, and cold suppresses flavor. And 
Yeah. If you have a crappy logger, probably it's the way to go. But if you have anything else, maybe not. But so the reason that the, one of the ways that frost, well, I'm probably getting myself into hot water here. Hopefully the scientists listen to this. <laughs> one of the no, reasons no, that frost no. is the same ways and we get fog, right? Which is you rapidly cool the air around it and yeah. the moisture in the air condenses and condenses on the side of the glass and it freezes. It's fascinating. Yeah. So it's kind of sign in a scientific way. It's kind of cool. So did you taste any difference in this? No, I couldn't tell any difference at all. Me neither, but it's not a hot day. Right. Uh, you know, but yeah. I, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> so scientific <laughs> experiment has revealed that there isn't a big difference. And that's actually a good point because I think this thick glass thing is a little bit misleading. I don't know the glass is that great an insulator anyway. Yeah, probably not. I think uh, there's, so we, we call these glasses steins, mm -hmm. which is slightly inaccurate. It's not what they call them in Germany. Stein means stone and uh, they come from the old stoneware glasses. Uh, so a yes. lot of times you'll see these uh, old German glasses that are made out of stoneware. That's an actual steinware glass. And I think those are a little bit more protective in a lot of ways. So if you're outside, probably better to have one of those an opaque Steinware glass than one of these. All so. right. So if you were making a recommendation, we, gotta, we have to wrap this up. I noticed we're getting really long. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we thought this was going to be a very short one. Uh, if you had a recommendation, if you were creating your own little, uh, uh, I don't know, cabinet of glasses, what, what, would, you, what would you want on hand? I'd, I'd want a pint glass. I'd want a... Uh, a tulip glass and probably a goblet. And okay. I think that's all you need. All right. Uh, the other thing is a little blasphemous, but wine glasses are great. Uh, wine glasses <gasps> will, <laughs> will will serve all your needs just as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Our next uh, feature of our show yep. is the Sherpa. Oh, and, yeah. And you uh, have a Sherpa this week. I do. So another brewery that sent me beer was the Surreal Brewery from California, and they make non-alcoholic beer. And we, we had talked to Athletic in one of our podcasts. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I want to highlight a beer that they sent me called Juicy Mavs, uh -huh. which was a hazy IPA non-alcoholic beer, which seems like it's got to be insanely hard to make yes. uh, properly. Uh, just like, I mean, hazy IPAs are actually kind of hard to make so that they're, they're satisfying and tasty. Right. This thing really worked. Um, there's no way to take... Uh, alcohol out of a beer and make it taste exactly like beer. Right. So clearly you're, you're losing that, but they had a lot of hop character and it was quite nice. So I was really impressed. Um, if you're looking for a, a non-alcoholic beer and you love hazies, that's not a bad way to go. And the cool thing about non-alcoholic beer is you can buy it straight from the brewery cause it's not a beer. So they'll ship it to you. Right. You can, you can ship it anywhere. Yeah. Hey, uh, they only make non-alcoholic beer or do they make regular beer too? They only make non-alcoholic only make non-alcoholic beer. So that's interesting to me. I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing regular craft breweries starting to do non-alcoholic on the side. Right. In, in Germany, regular breweries do the non-alcoholic right. beers. And exactly. here we have specialty, yeah, specialty breweries and not non-alcoholic breweries, uh, not regular breweries. So it's interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Mailbag time. Mailbag. <laughs> so how do you want to deal with a mailbag, my friend? Well, uh, we have this one from Tom, and I've, I think I've condensed it, so it's it's readable. Okay. If you want to read the whole, if you want to read Tom's long longer piece, we've posted it already on the Twitter feed, and I think it's interesting as a long piece, and you'll get a flavor of that when we read this. But if you want the whole kind of ruminative thing that Tom sent us, go to uh, at beervonapod. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Tom, uh, I apologize, but it may be Mane. Yeah, something like that. M A H N E. Yeah, from Boston. <clears throat> says the following. Well, paraphrase, I run a beer program in Boston and have had a, the nasty habit of losing sleep worrying about beer. 
Things like who owns the language of our industry and how we can actively pursue a clear, informative, and accessible lexicon for both the nerds and the normal people. The general colloquial categories for beer, IPA, Belgian, dark, sour, present quite a few problems. IPA is a style. Dark is a color and the result of a process. Sour is a flavor and a process. Belgium is a place and a yeast profile. Yikes. New beer drinkers are intimidated by the vastness of our category and require some shepherding. We need to find the linguistic precision. Do you guys worry about this at all? You know, I used to worry about it a lot more. Maybe you have an answer. Um, it is complex. There are a lot of conflicting words and categories and things change. But on the other hand, humans use the language that works for them. And I know that a lot of people are really irritated by all the ways that uh, IPA is, is used for radically different beers, uh, just as one example. And yet, uh, for most people, what IPA means is intensely hoppy with saturated hoppy flavors. Right. And so they're not thinking of style. They're thinking of a quality. And right. so if you put that on a pale ale or a, uh, a black ale or a fruity ale, people understand what you're pointing to. So it works. I, I think coming to a kind of general sense of what these words mean um, is is really all we have to do. And 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 it's always fluid and it's always changing, but it I'm, I've become more and more sanguine about it over time. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I think that it's true that it's a challenge, but it'll always be a challenge because there's always innovation and new things and it's hard to categorize and it's hard to explain. Uh, part of that is fun, is part of the fun, I think part of the mystery imagination, the diversity of beer, which attracts people, um, not unlike wine, I suppose, a little bit, but, yeah. it, but it's more accessible than wine, I think, and a little bit more um, more diverse. So I actually think it, part of it's a strength. And the other thing is we know from behavioral um, studies that people Ooh. use heuristics, right? So people use right. shortcuts. Right. And then what we've developed essentially is just a bunch of verbal shortcuts that let people know about the sort of key aspects, the main things you notice about a beer. And so it's true that, you know, we might have this uh, term Belgian or dark or IPA and they they signify different things and they seem very different, but they're really just a shortcut. It's like I say Belgian and then immediately I think, okay, so I'm expecting a certain yeast profile, maybe some sourness, you know, uh, so on and so forth. And I IPA, okay, it's going to be a big, it's going to have a lot of hops, you know, <laughs> those kinds of things. I actually think right. that those are very useful, even though they seem weird if you try to uh, dissect them too clear, uh, carefully. But I think that that's just the sort of the little natural shortcuts that we we have developed over time. I do think, however, having said all that, that uh, efforts to try and kind of coalesce around certain terms and try to make things more clear and careful for people is important. And you see this in, be in beer bars, you know, they'll sort of, they'll classify their beers. Here's the light beers, here's the dark, here's the hoppy, here's the sour. And I think that's great. Yeah. Um, and a good, well-trained staff will be able to kind of dissect that stuff for, for the punters. But I, I love it. I mean, I love the, I love that variety. I love the fact that we have a thousand words to try and describe different beers because that just means it's such a rich and diverse uh, a product that people can really sort of explore and go in vastly different directions and, and uh, really uh, find exciting things. So, I, you know, it's, it's hard to make it 100% accessible, but you don't want to make it so accessible that it becomes boring. Totally. Okay, right. uh, <laughs> uh, quickie, uh, before we go out, um, we had somebody write into our Twitter handle, which reads Beervana Pod, 
uh, we're, we're going to leave it that way, but um, the title says Birvana Podcast, and they said change it to show, and we did that. So we're trying to sh- shift everything over to the show to uh, honor our uh, broadcast here on X-Ray. Yeah. And then we also got a droll response from Alan Sprintz, who is the uh, brewmaster and owner at Hair of the Dog, and we had his 10-year-old uh, Adam, when we were really impressed with how cool it was, and he replied, "How it aged so well." How it aged so well. Yeah, and and he replied on Twitter and wrote uh, this very short, uh, <laughs> beautiful comment: 10 years is a good start." <laughs> so way to go, Alan! Uh, it certainly was a great start. So, it was, yeah. I would, ne- I, yeah, I was really surprised how well that beer aged. That was delightful. Yeah. So hit us on Twitter if you have comments or questions, and uh, we'll put you in the mailbag. All right. A few words going out. Once again, we want to extend a hearty thank you to Breakside Brewery for sponsoring this episode of The Beer Vana Show. You can find them in Portland and Milwaukee, Oregon, or at breakside.com. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. This helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions and comments to jeff at beervanablog.com or on Twitter to at Beervana Pod. Jeff blogs at Beervana Blog and he tweets at at Beervana. I thought thought that was your part. No, Uh, go ahead. (laughs) And Patrick tweets at Beeronics. All right, cheers, Jeff. Oh, we got it. We got to figure out what to cheers with. Yeah, I'll let you. You you can make your first. You make your selection. You know what? I'm going to go for the threes brewing. Yeah, I knew you were going to go for that, so I'm I'm snagging it before you get there. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to go for the two roads, which is also delightful. Uh, I have the dictator is the people from threes brewing, and I've got. Two Roads Synopsis, Red Fruits. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.